everybody. Welcome to another PR Masters podcast series brought to you by the Stevens Group. In case you don't already know who the Stevens Group is, we're one of the leading mergers and acquisition firms in the PR and digital interactive space. I'm Art Stevens, managing partner of the Stevens Group and your host for today. The PR Masters podcast series features luminaries and legends in the world of public relations. And today is no exception. I'm very pleased that our guest today is Alan Taylor, who was the founder of Alan Taylor Communications, uh, a man who has spent more than 45 years in the marketing and communications profession, and half of those years as the founder of Alan Taylor Communications, which was the number one ranked public relations agency in sports leisure activities. Alan kind of carved out a unique niche in the world of sports and leisure, which, as we all know, have become big-time industries. So Alan has had numerous awards during the course of his career uh, for client activities, for the programs he's developed, and through his leadership, his agency became known for its strategic problem-solving. And while, while active in the agency through 2004, Alan managed a budget of more than $20 million with a staff of 75 people. And Public Relations Week, which is the uh, leading professional trade association, next to, of course, Compro, uh, headed by Faye Shapiro, who is our co-host today, uh, named Alan as one of the top 100 public relations executives of the 20th century. There's no equal to Alan Taylor when it comes to sports marketing. Alan has handled major events and programs in golf, auto racing, baseball, basketball, boxing, tennis, and other racket sports. And on the product side, he's worked in the cosmetic, tobacco, toys, games, distilled spirits, footwear, and fashion apparel industries, as well as numerous programs for the United States Mint and USPS. Now, through the years of serving corporate clients, Alan has developed strong, credible relationships with some of the top brand marketing executives in the country, as well as with major media. Uh, in 2004, Alan sold his agency, which has been since renamed Taylor. His name will never disappear. Uh, it is now Taylor. He sold the agency to a team of six partners. And he and his senior partner, interestingly, one of his senior partners at present, are owners of the Syracuse, excuse me, the Syracuse Crunch hockey team in the American Hockey League. Well, that's kind of a diversion. So Alan Taylor hockey team owner and founder of Alan Taylor Communications. I'd like to welcome you to the PR Masters podcast series. And, Alan, how are you today? I'm fine, Art. I'm down in South Florida, as you know, in Boca Raton, waiting out the uh, the crisis. I'm missing my golf games, but uh, we're all trying to stay safe. I have a nice big house. We, you know, we do a little around the house. We swim a lot, and we play cards in the house. And, you know, we're doing everything we can to stay safe and healthy. Uh, we want you safe and healthy. We want everyone safe and healthy. Yeah. So, Alan, thank you for being a guest today on our PR Masters podcast, and you are indeed a PR master. Uh, your career has spanned both working as a journalist along the way, and then you started your own very highly successful public relations practice. Um, can you describe the, ste the steps that took place for you to become founder and CEO of Alan Taylor Communications? Well, I started out as a sports writer way back in high school for a high school newspaper and then gravitated to a local newspaper on out of Miami Beach 
where I was sports editor for a couple of years uh, while I was in college. After I graduated University of Miami in 1958, I took the call to go west. I went out to Los Angeles and worked on a newspaper called the San Gabriel Valley Tribune, 22 miles east of Los Angeles. I had a ball. I covered UCLA. I covered uh, all the football games, baseball games. I, I lived with the Dodgers. I got to know them, you know, Sandy Koufax very well, Don Drysdale. And along the way, I got married, and you know, and I, I was traveling a lot, and they wanted me to travel with the Dodgers every baseball game. And that was not for me to be away from a wife, a young married couple. So I decided to go into PR in Los Angeles and took a job in industrial PR, which I do nothing about. It was a plastics manufacturer. And I started writing press releases. And funny thing, I was writing them as if I were a sports writer. And the man I was working for just said, that doesn't work in commercial or industrial PR. So he taught me the way around uh, the PR, what would appeal to certain magazines for the product. I stayed there for a couple of years, and then I realized that the center of PR was really New York. So I packed up. We drove back to New York. My wife was from New York. My family was in New York. I started knocking on doors, literally knocking on doors, and this is 19, uh, this is 1964. Right uh, in between leaving L.A. and moving to New York, I took an assignment in Miami Beach to handle the public relations for the Cassius Clay uh, Liston fight. And after that, we we journeyed up to New York, and I started knocking on doors. I found one door that was open for me, and that was Gray Public Relations which is part of gray advertising. And they were getting involved with the, uh, with the New York World's Fair. So they needed somebody to stay out at the fair and, and out in Flushing Meadows. So I spent two years, literally every day, at the World's Fair. They had a, uh, we represented about six different pavilions. What that did for me is it, it led me to understand how to take a story about the Lower and Brow Beer Garden or, or the Disney Wonderful World, and how to get the New York and the national media to write about it. I was looking for angles all the time, plus the fact that I lived in the press room of the World's Fair, so I got to know all the New York media, which I thought was great. Then, when the, when the World's Fair ended, I stayed at Gray another year, and then they decided, let's, let's see what else is out there. I went to work for the first and only corporation in my entire life in New York, Ligon and Myers Tobacco Company. Oh, wow. I never smoked, never will smoke, <laughs> but I learned more about marketing and more about how to integrate PR events and activities to help publicize a product. For example, Lark Cigarettes. What was the thing about Lark? Lark claimed it had an activated charcoal filter. Okay, let's promote it. How did I promote it? I created the good old-fashioned media tour, and I went on the road with a spokesperson, and we had a traveling suitcase of different items that all used activated charcoal filter, such as a spaceship. So I had a model spaceship. Uh, I had a sink with a filter on it to show how the water is filtered from clean to dirty. And this spokesperson got on every radio show, morning talk show, 
in the, in the cities that we went. And we drew uh, more requests for brochures than the advertising campaign prepared by J. Walter Thompson drew. So that gave me a little insight of how to integrate a, a marketing campaign and PR, how to make the campaign came al- come alive. Then I left there after two years, went to work for Edward Gottlieb Associates, and one of I their accounts... Know, I didn't know Ed, by the way, Alan. I knew Ed. I'm sure you did. I mean, he was a legend, a giant in, yes. in consumer PR. Uh, and one of his clients happened to be Liga de Myers Tobacco Company. <laughs> so there was a natural fit for me. And you know, through that relationship of Gottlieb and, and, and Liga, Liga was going into sports, auto racing. They were going into golf tournaments. To, you know, to promote problem. I said, wow, this is perfect for me. And through that effort, I realized that sports and PR and marketing should all come together. Now, all of a sudden, Liggett moves to uh, North Carolina. Gottlieb loses the business. Ed calls me in and says, you know, I said, Ed, look, I understand. Just tell me, you know, just shake my hand, wish me well, and tell me what you're going to give me, meaning a severance pay. He turned around and said, I'm going to give you $50. I said, Ed, God bless you. Thank you for the handshake. I think you need the money more than I do. And I left. <laughs> um, I, I, I dabbled around trying to figure out what to do. Took a, uh, a stint with um, Rudo Finn, which didn't work out well. And then a friend of mine recommended me to a company in Minneapolis, Opadilla and Spear. They had a one-man New York operation, and they, that guy was leaving, so they needed somebody to run that operation. I said, I will run it, but I'm not going to do corporate or financial PR. I'm only going to do consumer PR and sports. They said, fine. And I, I ran that office and built it for five years. I loved Don Padilla and Dave Spear. We had a ball. I put them on a map in New York City. And then I got the bug. I said, gee, I'm, I'm doing all this work for, for somebody else. Why shouldn't I do it for myself? So Dave Spear came in one day from, from Minneapolis. He said, what's bugging you? Now, I don't know, Dave. I'm just not happy, blah, blah, blah. He said, I, I figured you want to go into business for yourself. If I were you, I would start the agency, your own agency, and take the accounts with you because we can't do sports. I said, Jesus, that, that is wonderful. Would you put that in writing? <laughs> sure. And I said, and he says to me, why don't you stay in the office that you're here now until you get settled, pay us a few bucks rent, and you're off and running. And that was the Minneapolis or Midwest attitude I fell in love with. And Don, when Don Padilla came back from his vacation and found out I was paying rent. He sent me all my rent, all my rent money back. Because I put them on a map. I played a a straight game with them. I built their New York visibility, and they were happy with that. So that's how I started. I I went into my own business uh, uh, with one employee, uh, one secretary. I took them all with me. I took the accounts with me. Uh, I had Bristol-Myers, all all sports. And it just built from that point. Uh, What I realized, Art, is that, when a company, let's say uh, MasterCard or, or 
Maxwell House Coffee, when they decided to sponsor an event, an activity, press releases don't do it. Uh, Yeah, if it's major news breaking, yeah, they'll do it. You have to create a PR event, experiential marketing. I use that term now. I was doing it back in the the 80s. For example, Maxwell House Coffee sponsored the Olympics, and we, along with a sales promotion company, created the Maxwell House Olympic Spirit Award, where we had uh, at every every Olympic that they sponsored, we awarded an athlete based upon certain criteria. But to make sense out of it, we went back in time. We went back to the 60s and created uh, a retrofit for the award. And we generated for the Calgary Olympics in, uh, so much advanced publicity building up to the games. By the time I got to the games, the media were looking for me, my staff, to figure out who's going to be the winner of the Maxwell House Olympic Spirit Award. <laughs> and we did that uh, for several Olympics. And all of a sudden, I became an Olympic hero, and we got clients. We had eight, I've been to eight Olympics. We've oh, wow. had four or five clients at the Olympics. I would bring six, seven people with me, and we'd each work on a different client. We controlled the media, and it paid off handsomely for the clients. So that, you know, that was the, the, the basis back in, in 80 and 84, 88. I mean, we did a, a lot of different events. MasterCard was a client of ours uh, 15 years plus. MasterCard went into sponsoring the uh, uh, World Cup soccer. We created some events for them. We never did anything in Europe. Marianne Fulgenzi, the PR director at the time, challenged my partner, Howard Dalgan, said, if you can get so many people to a press conference, and I think it was in Italy, I don't remember where, I'll eat a piece of paper. I mean, we never did anything in Europe. But we had something that we knew how to manage. How hard is it to get PR when your representative spokesperson is is Pele, the world's greatest soccer player? But we knew how to manage it. We knew how to finesse. We knew how to make stories that he could deliver, not just an interview about how great Pele was or who's going to win the you know, soccer tournament, but the message that Master uh, Mastercard wanted to deliver. It wasn't just getting Mastercard's name in. We would. Uh, package it around whatever advertising campaign MasterCard had, Master the Moments, Greatest Moments. And we did that for World Cup soccer, golf, uh, baseball. And I, uh, I think that was it. So that was Quick the – Quick question, you know, Alan. Quick yeah. question. Um, this, is, this is really fascinating. I mean, you, in effect, have uh, developed you know, the art, even back then, to a higher state than it ever was. Uh, do you think that uh, PR firms today are doing what you're doing? Um, I think the PR firms today, including what, what little I know of my old firm, Taylor, I think they're just pushing social media. On ah, it. Well, I can't, and I can't blame them. Let's face it. The, unfortunately, the print media, is, you know, especially newspapers, is virtually down the tubes. But with outlets like Facebook, you can still create the events, you know, uh, experiential marketing event, and push it onto, uh, onto the social media. 
So they should be doing the same. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier today to post something on Facebook than to, you know, than to try to talk the New York Times sports editor into doing a story on a MasterCard sponsorship. You, know, you can get away with a lot more today, good, bad, or, or indifferent. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm not, uh, I don't stay in touch with the, with the Taylor people. Um, they're doing, you know, they've changed the way they want to do business. They're, they're going after certain kind of clients, and uh, I am sure it's 99% social. So, Alan, you, you obviously, you know, uh, were riding an early wave of, uh, of uh, corporate America or, in many instances, corporate international, uh, taking on sports as a means to achieve greater identity in the marketplace. Uh, to you know, to align themselves and to link themselves with various sports and uh, events that would be created as a result. So my question to you is, which came first, the the cart or the horse? Um, did uh, did corporations take on sports as as a, as a natural avenue for recognition as a result of the work you did uh, for some of the uh, early clients you had, or uh, did that trend start? Um, with or without you? No, let me answer uh, several different ways. Number one, during my early days, the print media in general, and in particular rather, was very hesitant to mention a commercial name in, a, in any coverage. So if it, if it was the MasterCard golf tournament, for example, you you had a beg plead with the sports writer to mention MasterCard Golf, whatever it was. Um, that that problem remained for a long time. The Associated Press, which sets the you know some sort of a, a, a style book policy, what, what, you know you could read a story about a golf tournament and you call it the one would call it the, uh, the MasterCard Open, for example, and the and AP would call it the Open. So you had to really beg the writers to, you know, publicize it. I went to the AP Sports Editors Convention one year uh, down in Washington, D.C., and I, I made a case that you can't have two names for an event. You can't – one writer can't call it the you know, MasterCard Open, and the other guy calls it the Open. And I, I won that battle where they began to ease up giving the commercial name to the event. Now you see it all the time. So – I played a role in that in helping the commercial – I was helping corporations get their names publicized and the media accepting it as an everyday practice. The original argument was if you want to be mentioned by an ad, by a commercial, but the AP and UPI then finally eased up, and now they recognize that it's, it's an everyday occurrence. So I, I did play a role in that. Um, you know, to help the corporations get visibility. So, how is the world of sports different today than when you first got into it? You know, obviously. The- well, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I did the Maxwell House Olympic Spirit Award with the United States Olympic Committee, we needed to build a team of spokespeople, former Olympians. And uh, I'll give you one example: uh, a guy by the name of Bob Beeman who was the world's uh, long jump champion at that time. He, he set a record of 22-something feet. 
in the 1968 Mexico Olympics. We wanted him as a spokesperson because of his story. We paid him a thousand dollars for you know for an effort to be a spokesperson. Today, who knows what that would cost? Ten thousand? Fifty thousand? I mean, we were able to pay athletes very, very little to be a spokesperson. But as the sports exploded and, and things became more sophisticated, including the USOC, the prices began to go up. I mean, obviously, Pele didn't get $1,000. He got a large sum of money from MasterCard. But that was all in the building process because the endorsements really didn't exist that big that far back until the explosion with the television rights. I mean, so the sports has changed in the commercialization uh, primarily, almost exclusively, through the, the, the growth of television. If you look at what ESPN and all the networks pay for rights fees today, and you want to get a spokesperson, we used Reggie Jackson uh, for a the Bisco promotion. We barely paid him anything. And that goes back to uh, early 2000. I mean, you know, so the explosion has been you know, through the rights that the, the networks charge or the, uh, the leagues charge, and, and the athletes follow through. So if you want a player today that's retired, there's almost like a pay scale. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you started your agency, there was no such thing as ESPN. And all the no, other, that's correct. All the that other correct. Uh, you know, cable stations that cover sports. We only had AP and UPI and, and INS, and each one went by, you know, all but AP went by the wayside. One of my favorite stories came with Gillette. Gillette started a promotion, was a million-dollar challenge if, uh, for a three-point shot during the NCAA finals. And what they did, what Gillette did, is run a sweepstakes, you know, the old-fashioned sweepstakes contest, clip it out, put it in, you know, mail it in because there was no Internet at that point. And they picked a winner through the company that ran the promotion. And our responsibility was to promote the winner and to promote the sweepstakes. We had a, a gentleman from North Carolina by the name of Bobby Shiver, and we made a folk hero, a folk hero out of him. By the time we hired a, a, a coach uh, like Rick Barry uh, or other other famous basketball players, we made a, we created events. We created uh, uh, the old-fashioned satellite news releases. And by the time we got to North, uh, down to New Orleans, where the Final Four was being played. The media were chasing us to find out, what can we do with Bobby? Where is he? What are you doing? So we had a practice day. We had a, a, a mall day. We, we, we created media events for him, but in a manner not to compete with what the Final Four was doing. So if there was no practice for the Final Four team, we had a media event that day because we can't compete say, with the Alan, Is it safe to say that you help put sports on the map big time in terms of the, you know, the results you were able to achieve for your clients? Yes. I, I, I would take, proudly take that uh, as a compliment and a credit, yes. But you know, the end of the Gillette story was when we finished our promotion, we did the normal numbers game with the, uh, you know, how many views you had, all this, and we presented it to the Gillette you know, 
senior staff. After we, you know, after we presented it, the vice president of advertising turned around and said, don't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> I can buy advertising cheaper than you can do PR, but you gave us something that advertising can't do, and that was credibility for our promotion. And that, that statement resonated for years with me. We, get, we, we did that third-party endorsement, the credibility. We made this silly little sweepstakes come alive. And, it, you know, and they sold more products to it, which was the name of the game. And I, you know, I, I, I captured all of this stuff. Art. Uh, I was pushed to do it by my family and friends in a book I wrote last year, you know, Perfect Pair and Event Promotions. And I've used that as a lecture platform of some universities. And, you know, I've had some fun with it. How can it's I not, a not a bestseller. It's not a bestseller, but it still yeah. sits on Amazon. But uh, it's, it's not going to be on a bestseller list. But it's my legacy to my family and friends. Well, I would imagine, Alan, that many many PR professionals would would find that very instructional. Uh, yeah, in I, that's what it was written. And I, I I really wrote it not for the PR professionals, more for the students, uh, you know, younger people. Because in, in my day, your day, there was no such thing as a PR curriculum. They didn't teach that in school. I mean, journalism was the closest thing to it. Now they have all these fancy programs and stuff. Um, but, you know, I've had fun with it. I've been up to the University of Florida several times where my grandson is. And I've, I've lectured or I've, I've talked to the students up there in roundtable sessions. I just did Lynn University. So I've had some fun with it. So, Alan, can I ask you a gossipy question? Uh, what kind of question? A gossipy. Yeah. You've dealt with a lot of sports figures, you know, through the last number of years. Uh, who are among the people that you revere the most? Uh, you know, talk about athletes or or, or owners or or any any key person connected to sports. Who are some of the, you know, the most famous, the the, the most reverential people that you knew? And the, uh, the the other side of that question is, who are some of the the worst people that you met during the world of sports? Uh, the, the first person that I, I admired the most was I, I, I'm still a writer, and I'm, uh, I'm looking at a picture of him with me. Was Arnold Palmer, the only person that made me speechless. I was walking next to him at the LA Open, and I, I just, you know, this I was just in awe of him. Um, I've spent a lot of time art in, in women's sports, and among those that I admire the most are people like Billie Jean King. Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett. I spent a lot of time with them on the East Professional Golf Tournament. I traveled two years for Eve Cigarettes. I got to know a lot of the players of that generation, like Janie Blaylock, uh, uh, among others. And, and, uh, it's hard to say who would be the nastiest or the hardest to deal with. Um, Pele was... Uh, not not bad, but he was hard to deal with because he he had specific things he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. Uh, so you have to you know build around his schedule. Uh, I, I found all the athletes, uh, if you treat them with respect and you know, and and recognize their the value of their time and give them some heads up, I've never had a problem with an athlete. Uh, 
uh, I'm looking at pictures now on my wall. I mean, I got, you know, they were all, and, and, and bear in mind, they were, you know, underpaid or paid the fair rate for that generation. Right. I yeah. think what's happened is that to be a spokesperson for PR purposes, an, uh, an athlete really doesn't need that. He's going to get $100,000 for doing a 30-second commercial. Right. So what, what we would try to do, let's say we had um, Joe Montana, as an example, he was doing a commercial for Newprint. Uh, what we did is literally hide in the bushes while they were shooting the commercial, and we shot B-roll for a video news release <laughs> and, and then got Joe Montana to do a 30-second interview. Um, you know, it, so you had to be creative. I mean, we did an event for Newprint also, which is a Bristol-Myers product at that time. We had... Uh, the Super Bowl was being played in Minneapolis, and we had Jim Kelly playing in Minneapolis, who was also a, a spokesperson for Newprint, and we had Joe Montana in California at his home. And we wanted to do a, like a, a, a joint satellite news event live from Minneapolis to California with the media watching it. And this is before this high-tech stuff. So we had two crews, one in Minneapolis and one in, uh, out in Santa Clara, California. And we had the media all gathered in the media center in, in Minneapolis and local media in, in Santa Clara. And we had a camera, uh, and, and, Joe Mon- uh, and um, Jim Kelly was inviting Joe Montana to come to the Super Bowl. Now, we had uh, Jim Kelly hand now, you know, picture several thousand miles away before technology was really different. We had, Joe, uh, we had Jim Kelly handing an envelope to Joe Montana. What he was doing, he was handing the envelope with two tickets in it, supposedly, to the camera. And on the other end, we had Joe Montana taking out the same envelope from, the, from our staff. So it looked like it was simultaneous. And Joe Montana opens up the envelope, and he says, he says on camera to Jim Kelly, you cheap, you couldn't get me better seats? And then, of course, we, we had all the background, all the banners with new print on it. We got <laughs> huge coverage all over the world. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. And, and, and that's, that was difficult to pull off simultaneously because the technology wasn't there. Well, so, I mean, uh, you know, the, but today the athlete is different. I mean, you can't go out and get uh, uh, LeBron James to sit still to do a PR event. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wheaties, for example, they were going to do a box with Michael Jordan. So they called me out to, uh, out, to, uh, out to Minnesota. They wanted to have a big think tank with all their agencies. And, all right, I sat there. I made a lot of recommendations. And Michael shot them all down. He would only go for a press conference in in Chicago. Okay, I, I can live with that. I wanted him to do something in a gym with a uniform on. No, no, he came out with a suit and tie on. And, you know, so I mean, was that being difficult? No, you had to make the do with it. He stayed at every interview. He, he did all the satellite stuff we needed, but he wanted to do it his way. Right. Yeah. Oh my God, argue with, I'm not going to argue with Michael Jordan. Well, you're be arguing with a god, right? <laughs> no. Um, 
Yeah, so we had a lot of fun with the Olympics. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a, I had a great life in it. Well, in fact, it's a funny thing. I, I just finished in, in, in January. I don't know why I got involved in it, but I did an assignment at a local, at a LPGA tournament here in Boca run by Octagon Sports. They asked me to help them. And I had a ball. It just, you know, I'm working with kids that are younger than my kids. But I had a ball. I had a blast. It brought back a lot of memories. Well, Alan, you brought, uh, clearly you brought a lot of creativity, you know, to the work you did for clients and in terms of how you were able to get, you know, clients covered by their names in the media uh, and the, uh, you know, the uh, development of, 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 a, of special events that allowed you to, to get even greater coverage for some of the events that you were hired to promote. Um, so would you say that, uh, you know, you were probably among the founders, I would say, of the art of, of uh, media placement and uh, creativity, you know, to find ways to get your clients into the media? I, I think, yeah, I, I would say yes. I, I appreciate that uh, uh, being placed on me, that, that, that kind of uh, reputation. The writing of press releases is a necessary part of the, uh, of the career, of the assignment. Uh, I stood in a press room in Palm Springs, California. I was not involved in that, I was just there observing. Uh, it was Colgate Palmolive. Uh, it was the Dinah Shore Ladies Golf Championship. I stood in the press room, and I watched, and I'm not going to mention her name, I watched the PR director of Colgate at that time admonishing the media for not putting the chairman of the board's name in the first paragraph of a news release, of a news coverage of that event. In other words, she wanted the press, not the press release, the news coverage from writer A, writer B, to start out by saying, so-and-so, the chairman of the board. That doesn't work that way in sports news. Um, I saw a press release on a golf tournament I just worked on down here, the LPGA, where there was more material about the sponsor and the golf course than about the tournament. Hmm. The the press sees that, and they say, I I don't want to mess around with this stuff. Give me some news. So PR people, even to this day, I don't think recognize news. I mean, we used to write two press releases, one that makes the client happy and one that gets printed. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. And I don't know how, these, you know how kids today or PR students today are taught about writing, if they are taught anything about writing. Uh, but you've got to give the news media news. They don't care about the earnings of a, of a corporation when they're talking about a golf tournament. That belongs on the business page. Well, Alan, the first thing that I learned when I got into public relations as a as a young cub, you know, was in order to place a a story, you know, in in uh, in in a particular magazine or newspaper, you really have to know the format of those media so that you can develop, you know, an approach that uh, is consistent with the kinds of things they would normally publish. Do you think that's been forgotten by a lot of PR people today? I, I think it definitely has, uh, because many PR people are, are, are living and dying of, off the computer, and they don't understand. They don't understand what a news release is. Obviously, you know, there's not many outlets left, 
but they have to do something to you know it's it's proverbial you get you got the first paragraph you got you know you got to capture them right away it, it's no different but i don't think they even teach that i don't think i don't know if it could be taught i i think people are living in the digital age and you know and they're worried about twitter i don't even have a twitter account but uh i think it's just different out there i i have i looked at some of the uh programs at the University of Miami and University of Florida. And, you know, rarely do you see anything taught about writing. So, Alan, uh, you you really raise an interesting point about, you know, the whole art of writing and, you know, and the development of of content. Um, Do you think that uh, it it diminishes the importance of of, of the public relations profession uh, when, some of its practitioners really don't even know how to approach the media. Absolutely, I I, I, I think people, you know, the PR practitioner today literally hides behind the digital media. You know, everything everything that comes out of an agency, and, I, and you're probably much closer to it than I am, is driven by digital. I mean, that, you know, there isn't much left in the print side other than magazines. And, 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 and TV, you can't send a, a, a sports anchor uh, on a local TV station a news release that talks about the financial standings of the company who's sponsoring the tournament. You still got to paint the picture. I mean, I, I've often said that I've been asked, "What are you?" I said, "I'm a painter." What do you mean paint? I paint a picture with words. That's great. Or I'm a marriage maker. I, I, I marry the client's particular story to the need of the media. We had a guy at Gottlieb. I don't remember his last name. His first name was Ted. And he was a magazine specialist. And he taught me a lot about how to write a synopsis of a magazine story that's going to capture an editor's uh, mind. I learned a lot from that. I, I, I represented world team tennis that Billie Jean King started. I, I, I developed maybe a dozen feature stories based upon what this guy uh, um, uh, taught me. And I got, I got responses. I ended up with two responses from airline magazines for the same story. I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I had American Airlines and... And Delta wanted to run the same feature story, yeah. But it was based upon a synopsis of three or four paragraphs of different aspects of what world team tennis was. Alan, and I don't think they, I don't think they do that anymore. No. A few more questions, Alan. This has been tremendous. Yeah. Uh, first of all, what have you been, what have you been doing since you sold your your agency? By the way, what was the reason you decided to sell your agency? As you know, well, I'm in the world of mergers and acquisitions now, yeah. and I also, um, and, and I also sold well, my I, agency at some point. Yeah, I, I reached a point where I felt it was time to move on. And well, I, let me back up. I created virtually a, a, an unwritten ten-year plan. Unwritten, not a formal buyout plan and my senior partner Howard Dolgan who's uh, who's 21 years younger than me he decided he wanted out also and I created as uh, as you saw in the article 
a team of six senior partners. I think they're down to four now or whatever. Um, and I, the first five years, I, I, I paid myself and Howard a very large salary. The second five years when I left, I had a buyout formula based upon a certain amount of earnings they were paying us out. Uh, the reason why I went that route as opposed to selling to a large corporation, or you know, and those were the early days of, of mergers too, I wanted to protect the senior partners. You know, when you, when you sell out, I know this is your, your, your cup of tea now, I didn't want them to be subject to uh, J. Walter Thompson or Hill and Knowlton. I wanted them to have the opportunity to continue the legacy and or to build on it, which they've done very nicely. Um, my legacy is not just my successes, but I am so proud of the number of people that I mentored along the way that have gravitated to big jobs. Uh, Brett Werner at MWW, uh, Ted Fragulis at Endeavor, Aaron Weinberg, who's running a company uh, from a uh, Boston company's office in New York. That's my legacy, is, is the people. We never had anybody leave. We never fired anybody. We just kept on building. And my, you know, my love was working with people. I never tried to hog the account. In other words, uh, I had a guy running the MasterCard business. I would show up once a year just to make the rounds. I never did everything myself. I did not want to be a one-man agency. And I decided that uh, I was 65 or 62 at the time that I had enough and you know, I wanted to enjoy it. And we had a home already down in Florida. And rather than commute, I decided to live here full-time and let them loose. They paid me off. They paid Howard Dolgan off. We are 25, almost 26, 27 years into the Syracuse Crunch hockey team that you mentioned. Um, hockey was Howard's first love. We bought a franchise, and I'm proud to say, which he runs. I, don't, I just sit and get my, my quarterly dividend. Uh, it's been very profitable every year we've been in business. And if they make the finals, I have to go up to Syracuse. <laughs> I'm sure that will be an easy chore for you. Well, it depends what time of the year it is. No, 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 I haven't been up there. I'm sorry? My final question to you is this. You know, given all that you have contributed to the world of sports uh, 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 marketing and sports PR, um, how how do you want to be remembered? Uh, I'd like to be remembered as a not only just successful, but as a person who cared for people whether they were the employees or the clients, there, there shouldn't be anybody out there that would, would criticize me for how I managed the people. I may not have managed the agency to the fullest extent. And I'll tell you a story about that in a minute, but I, I'm a more people person, and we had very, very few people you know, leave the agency or, or, or get fired. Um, that was, that's my legacy. I had people there... Uh, 10, 15 years. I mean, they just, you know, and it's still there, as a matter of fact. Um, there was a, an offer made, or I forget, it wasn't an offer. I, I got invited to visit with Hill and Knowlton. Uh, the, the guy, I forget the guy's name. 
senior vice president. And I, I knew he wanted to find out more about the agency and maybe do a deal. Uh, I don't want to do a deal with Hill and Moulton. So he says to me, what is your hourly rate, Alan? And I flippantly said to him, I have no idea. He said, what do you mean you have no idea? How do you know if you're profitable? Flippantly, I said, I pulled out of, out of my pocket my key. I said, when I put this door, key in the door every month, after 12 months, if I have money left over, I'm profitable. I never heard from him again. <laughs> you know, I mean, would I have made a lot more money uh, if I sold it? It's hard to say at that time. You know, the times change. Uh, uh, other, you know, you know the business better than I do as far as buying and selling and acquiring. At that point, I, I was either before or after the curve of you know the agencies gobbling up agencies. I guess they're still doing it now, but I just didn't see it because I, I think it would have destroyed my culture. I think well, it would destroy the culture. Your legacy still exists because you know Taylor Public Relations, which still bears your name, even though they they shortened it, and I guess they made a. You know, yeah, they shortened it, but they yeah, they left from. the equity and you know they left the equity in the name Taylor, which is part of my legacy. Well, and you know it, they, they've legacy. gone their own way. They have their own style. I, I I don't interface with them. They don't interface with me. I, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Uh, I live my life down here, very happy, very relaxed. I play a lot of golf. I also do a lot of marketing for the country club in which I live the Boca Point Country Club in Boca Raton, Florida. I, I run their marketing programs. I write the web stuff. So I, I keep myself mentally busy that way. Well, on that note, and the fact that you're living, you're, you continue to live a full life and, and, and give back to the people around you, uh, Alan Taylor, on behalf of our listeners, I really thank you for joining us today and sharing your views with us. I thank you, Art. I appreciate it. And thank you all for tuning into another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. Until next time, I'm Art Stevens, wishing you all the very best.